Welcome everybody to Be Kind Podcast. My name is Joe Kirkner. I'm with the Animal Advocates of South Central PA and this podcast is a part of the Animal Advocates of South Central PA's mission to create a more compassionate world for all living creatures, whether they write books about veganism, write books about the lives you can save, give TED Talks or have engaging YouTube videos or have a cult following amongst veganism. All animals deserve to be loved and we're in trying to make a world where that's a thing. And I'm today joined by Seth again. Yes, that's me. And John again. Hello. They're not related. <laughs> no, no, we're not. <laughs> so why was I just rounding off a bunch of weird facts and phrases? Is because today we are talking about Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, and more specifically, some of the ideas in it, that how we've evolved with our vegan thoughts and lifestyles over these years, and really just our reflections. And I know I read this book back when I first became vegan. It was actually one of the main reasons why I switched from a health vegan to an ethical vegan lens. So... It was very interesting to re- return to this book. And Seth? Uh, well, I had just always sort of been aware of the book. Before I was vegan, I knew about this book. And I had never read it. I had no idea what was really in it. And it's always just sort of been on my list. So I thought, you know, hey, why don't we uh, read it and talk about it? And John? I haven't read it. I never get to read any of the books <laughs> for review. It's I feel so dumb. But I know a lot about the topic, so I should be able to keep up with you guys. <laughs> yes. Luckily, we're not... There's no plot to fall. It's not really yeah. spoiling anything. So, you're, you're kind of like our control group. Yes. Yeah. I'm the peer mediator here. <laughs> <laughs> Making sure you guys don't, you know, kill each other over this. <laughs> Joe and I do tend to have slightly different opinions about nearly it's everything. It's true. That's good. Yeah. You know, uh, surprise you, spice of life. The world does not dance to be of just one drum. All that fun stuff. <laughs> Or does it? I don't know. Different <laughs> book. So I figure we start off just by giving our general impressions of the book or just kind of talking about how it really hit us reading it. I know when I first read this book years ago, I really dove into and bought into the first half of the book, which is basically him screaming at you, look how awful this is. And he talks a lot about animal experimentation and then factory farming and all that. And that was really opened my eyes to how terrible the world is back in the day. Though coming back to it now... I just picked out a few things I thought were interesting in there. And interesting, I mean terrible. There was a part where he talks about feeding TNT to beagles, I guess, to see if beagles can live off TNT. <laughs> I don't <laughs> oh my know. Goodness, my goodness. And then he just keeps around off all these animal experiments. And essentially what it came down to, I promise I won't get on my anti-capitalism soapbox, though I might have to get on it for just a little bit. It comes down to scientists need something to do and all the good really important stuff most of it's already been figured out or the scientists aren't necessarily interested in it so they figure eh, let's see how long a irradiated monkey that's dying of radiation poisoning can keep a plane level okay and then they do that and irradiate a bunch of monkeys and have them keep a plane level and they go well this is how long and then they go what now? And they go, further research needed. And just really to give them an excuse to get money and feed the capitalist machine. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, pretty much the gist of it. Uh, one thing that I found interesting, so the book starts out with two long sections. One, one the first one is about uh, animal experimentation, and the second one's about animal agriculture. And uh, what was interesting to me was, as vegans, we think, a whole lot about animal agriculture and maybe a little bit about animal experimentation. Now there's somewhat good reason for that because of 
the sheer numbers involved. But, you know, I hadn't thought a whole lot about experimentation. And he, he brings up a couple really interesting things. So a lot, a lot of people sort of make themselves at peace with animal experimentation because it's necessary. That's in quotes. It's right, necessary. Right. Because human lives are at stake here. We need to find some way to know if this medicine is safe, is the sunblock safe, whatever. And Peter Singer kind of finds a couple ways to say that that's just not okay. Joe, you want to help me out with the the uh, philosophy behind if you used a human to do these experimentations? Do you remember that line of reasoning? I wrote down the catch-22 of animal testing where it's animals are different enough from humans mm, to it, make yeah. it okay. But if they're similar enough to humans where it's relevant, then they're terrible because then they're similar enough to humans. Right. So, yeah, if if you're testing on an animal to find out if something will hurt a human, then you're saying that the animal is in, is enough like a human to prove or disprove the thing. So if it's, an, if it's enough like a human, then it can suffer or experience things in the same way we do. And also then, Peter Singer's like, you remember the time whenever he talks about like, if you used a mentally challenged person mm-hmm. to do this, I can't think of how that, that like proves speciesism in a way. It's because as a society, we would u- almost universally condemn using mentally challenged people to perform these experiments under the guise of that just by being human, they're inherently superior and have worth and value just by being human. And I would argue just by existing, they do, which would then expand that umbrella of compassion towards non-human animals. But the species, this phrase is, well, the rat isn't human. So then it's okay to experiment because it doesn't have this je ne sais quoi of humanity to it. Right. But say, yeah, and so if you had a mentally challenged person or intellectually challenged person with, say, the understanding of a three-year-old human, you would never experiment on that human. But there are animals they experiment on that have a better grasp of the world than a three-year-old human. So what is the quality that we're looking for aside from simple inclusion in our species? It's just the fact that we're humans. It's not the understanding, the, intel- the intellect, the ability to suffer, There's all these kinds of things. That's, that, that's what really struck me interestingly. Mm-hmm. And I think that, well, he goes into a lot in the book with philosophy and all that and pulls all these different philosophers, all of whom are philosophers, so they're kind of just basically BSing and it's kind of their job. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I love philosophy. It's very fun to read and think about, though I would not base any moral choices that directly affect other living, feeling creatures out there off the philosophy of people from hundreds of years ago. Anywho, and then I think he says something along the lines of what we're saying, how humans are just have something special about us because we're humans, which is the idea, which is one of the basic tenets of speciesism, where just by simply being a homo sapien, we are superior to other non-human animals just because. And then he says anyone who makes that argument is basically not making an argument at all. They're just restating their opinion in a different, fancier way. Right, because any quality that you try to pin down as the core quality of humanity that you're using to justify your speciesism can be found in a different species. If you're like, oh, we're, we're not going to experiment on, on humans because of their ability to plan for the future, then, you know, there's like, well, what about, you know, all these dozens of other species that can do that? Well, we won't experiment on humans because of, you know, their close family ties. Well, you know, what about all these other animals? So, yeah, there's, there's no one defining characteristic that 
aside from our inclusion in the species. And the, now I realize why you brought up the anthropomorphism thing before, because this is me jumping a bit, but it doesn't matter if the other animal has close families or can plan for the future. We still shouldn't kill and torture them and stuff them inside cages and drop poison into their eyes. It's still not cool, regardless right. of whether or not they have these values that we arbitrarily, or maybe not evolutionarily, consider important as a human species. And something else that I really thought was interesting, he does bring up the point that, well, I guess if there was a mentally challenged person who we could experiment on or kill through this research and save a million lives, then it might you, we could have a discussion if that's okay. But then he goes on to say, but we're not even close to being there yet. So maybe once we stop all this other terrible stuff, then we can have this conversation, which is how I feel a lot of times people go, don't plants feel or have her thought about the moral worth of carrots. I say, well, <laughs> I, yeah, I thought about it, But the thing is, we got so much other worse stuff to worry about first. Maybe once capos aren't a thing and we're not tearing baby calves away from their mothers, or we're not dripping poison into bunny rabbit's eyes, then we can have that conversation. But slowly roll sassy pants. <laughs> yeah, that's I second that. I agree. Yeah. That's all I got as far as the animal experimentation. I think that. Yeah. We decide well. before so you don't want to spend too much time talking about this because you can literally just Google any of this and find a million different videos and articles and yeah. blogs and things telling you how awful the world is. Yeah. Well, I mean, all, I guess one more salient point on the topic is that all the things that they're experimenting on animals for right now already exist. Like we don't need to experiment for more lipstick. Like there's lipstick already. So even most of the drugs they're experimenting on, it's like they've already done it. And I really don't want to spend too much time on factory farming because I think the basic idea is capitalism has made factory farming or has made food production about making money, not about feeding people. And that's why it's terrible. The end. I'll agree to that. And you know that I'm no, I'm no lover of capitalism, but as you and I discussed earlier, I don't know that there's there'd be a good way to do it under any system. If you, I mean, to feed, what is there now, 8 billion humans? If you're feeding 8 billion humans animals, shenanigans are going to occur. There, there's no way, I mean, not that, not that animals should ever be killed or eaten, but if you want to get enough animals to feed 8 billion people, it's not going to look good for the animals. But yeah, capitalism makes it even I don't worse. Know. If the number one goal was just to feed people, they would say, Obviously, animals aren't the best way to do this. Let's do something else. Right. I have, I'd be curious to see the economics behind farmed animal production versus plant product production, which is more lucrative from the investor high CEO point of view. Yeah. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of profit in animals. I mean, or they wouldn't do it. I mean, that's the whole reason capitalism is so terrible, because it's, it's profit is the bottom line, so they'll do whatever they can to those animals. But, I mean, you know, we, we know for a fact that you have to use more plants to feed and grow animals, and, and so it's pound for pound, the amount of food you're, you're using is is much more yeah no i everything <laughs> he said I, I was i was thinking the same thing like you know it's just it's <laughs> you guys are pretty much saying everything i was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> sorry john it's okay <laughs> but yeah no i agree it's just uh, it's awful it's not sustainable and it's just awful <laughs> so that's the first half of the book basically telling you how awful these things are and the second half of the book interesting enough when i reread it the first time i read this i was already vegan so i figured i'm already vegan i don't need someone telling me how to go vegan so I didn't really read the second half all that closely. But this time, I figured I'd read it closely because we're going to be talking about such so I actually read the whole book, John. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting. And I, we talked a little bit before this, but for an individual who's putting forward an idea as radical 
and strong and just crazy and far out there as animal liberation, meaning all animals are liberate, equal consideration across the board. We should make sure we keep their interests in line with every other living creature's interests, including humans. He's very wishy-washy and has what I would call fairly soft stances on how to go about living this. I guess, does he ever use the word vegan ethic? Well, not the phrase, no, I don't think. Yeah, he has, doesn't really use the word vegan ever. He uses a couple times he, to explain yeah, what it like is. it's like four but, times the word vegan appeared. But now remember, this is like 1970, early 70s. Uh, revised 2008 edition. Uh, <laughs> oh, Joe, you're a dastardly varmint. <laughs> <laughs> is that speciesist phrase? <laughs> oh, you got me on speciesism. <laughs> well, before we hop into that, I mean, I, there's something at the very beginning of the chapter on speciesism. You know, what I think about a lot, is how in the world does this, how do we get to this point where as a culture, so many people are literally blind, and that's all of us. We were born this way. Some of us just sort of wake out of it, but blind to the differences, the different ways we see animals. Like as a kid, you love dogs and maybe lions and penguins, and you will eat cows. You have stuffed animals of some species and other species you eat. And I thought that if if I can read this one passage that really I thought sums it up really well before we get into the nitty gritty. Our attitudes to animals begin to form when we are very young and they are dominated by the fact that we begin to eat meat at an early age. Interestingly enough, many children at first refuse to eat animal flesh and only become accustomed to it after strenuous efforts by their parents, who mistakenly believe that it is necessary for good health. Whatever the child's initial reaction, though, the point to notice is that we eat animal flesh long before we are capable of understanding that what we are eating is the dead body of an animal. Thus, we never make a conscious, informed decision, free from the bias that accompanies any long-standing habit, reinforced by all the pressures of social conformity to eat animal flesh. At the same time, children have a natural love of animals, and our society encourages them to be affectionate towards animals, such as dogs and cats, and toward cuddly stuffed toy animals. These facts help to explain the most distinctive characteristics of the attitudes of children in our society to animals, namely, that rather than having one unified attitude toward animals, the child has two conflicting attitudes that coexist, carefully segregated, so that the contradiction between them rarely causes trouble. That, to me, explains how that duality is formed, like how we can love animals. I was always an animal lover. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to zoos and ate cheesesteaks and was an animal lover, and it's such a weird thing that that can happen, but it's this way that we're born and raised with these two different views. Yeah, and I mean, there's even like cartoons, like Disney cartoons, like Dumbo or like, Bambi, where they're like, oh, you got to love these precious animals. And then, you know, you go ahead and eat a chicken or, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you just like stop someone that's taking care of you from doing that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then we, then, then the friction does still occur sometimes. Like I know I felt weird about milk sometimes. I'd think about it. And so then we create these other things like the smiling cow and the cheese package mm-hmm. or even cuddly fun cartoons about farmyard animals or you know, yeah it, it's a constant battle because i mean it's everywhere i mean billboards we talked about this many times but i mean advertising it's everywhere 
it's hard to get away from it. And yeah. it's so funny when you hear about vegan parents where all the non-vegan parents go, you're brainwashing your kids to be vegan, <laughs> let them choose. And it's like, well, if you don't actively go against the rhetoric that's being put out there by all these things you just talked about, they're not choosing anything. And yeah. the whole rest of the world's conditioning them mm-hmm. to go in the opposite direction. So that, I mean, the real brainwashing is a regular society that's constantly giving you these images of animals that want to be eaten so that you can, any of that internal friction you may feel is constantly put back down and put back under. And Chick-fil-A's advertising is terrible. That <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. makes no sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, if, if, I mean, it just it points out the complete ridiculousness of the whole system. This is not a anti-Chick-fil-A, well, I guess it is an anti-Chick-fil-A <laughs> podcast staff right now, but this episode is not devoted towards demantling the Chick-fil-A empire. <laughs> if you're listening out there, don't sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> Please. The first time I had that wishy-washy idea of Peter Singer was when I read this part. The following is, if not ideal, a reasonable and practical strategy for essentially reducing your animal consumption or what he would define as going vegetarian and I would put that in quotations. Yeah. Replace animal flesh with plant foods. Okay. Yeah, good start. Like it, like it. Replace factory farm eggs with free-range eggs if you can get them. Otherwise, avoid eggs. You can scratch that whole first part there. Just uh, do away with eggs. Yeah. That's what I would say. Replace the milk and cheese you buy with soy milk, tofu, or other plant foods, but do not feel obliged to go to great lengths to avoid all foods containing milk products. Well, there's where we might have a discussion. So here's my point. I was, I've been thinking about this a lot. And it's similar to when you see a post on Facebook or Veg News releases an article saying, Justin Timberlake, I have no idea if this is true. Don't sue me, Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Justin Timberlake is 95% vegan, but admits to enjoying a nice juicy steak every now and then. Or sometimes likes a milkshake with his kids. And then all the vegans go and rail against him in the comments and say, and then there'll be someone there saying, you know, he's actually doing more than the non-vegans. We should cut him some slack. And I can see both sides of the argument. I'm going to put forward the former argument rather than the latter, because I don't like this guy's voice. So... <laughs> I think when you have a stance like that and you take a movement like veganism or in the context of this book, Animal Liberation, that's so staunchly defending of animals' feelings and rights and ability to feel and have compassion for them and have suffer and all that stuff that makes it such an urgent and pressing issue where literally unfathomable amounts of animals are suffering and dying every second. When you take something as urgent and dire as that and kind of make it something that, well, yeah, it sucks, but sometimes I just really want a steak. Or sometimes it's okay to be a part of this if it's really a bother otherwise. Or I'm okay with eating cake as long as I'm not explicitly the person making that cake come into existence. I think that paints veganism as much lighter a stance, almost like a fad or a phase or something not quite as important and urgent as it really is when you think about the sheer scale of the issue itself. So I agree with you and I disagree with you. So personally, yeah, I I want to live my life 100% without putting any animal products in my body. I think that that is what's right for me and that's what's right for the animals. But at the same time, I think it's dangerous to present veganism as something that requires 100% adherence to a pure concept. Because not only is it, the maybe, I don't know, I haven't done the research here, but maybe make it seem harder to enter into. Like it's, an, it's a, such a complete and utter change for some people that rather than take small steps, they may just stay away from it. Secondly, 
if you start talking about veganism like it is this 100% all-in, you-can't-mess-up system of purity, what it starts to sound more like a sort of religious necessity and lose the focus on doing the things that make impact for animals. So whether or not you eat that cake at that party that was cooked, whether you're going to be there or not, doesn't make any difference to the animal, and it doesn't make any difference economically for the demand on those animal products. I'm not suggesting that we go out and eat cake at parties <laughs> with milk and eggs in it, because that's a personal choice as a vegan that you make, whether your body is a temple against the evil of animal suffering. That's up to you, but it's it doesn't matter in the economic scheme of things when it comes to the actual reason we're doing this or the actual reason that it, it got started. The reason you're doing it, then you, you do what you need to do. I have a couple points. If you make the choice to consciously consume animal products over a piece of cake at a party, and as the situation isn't, your family would disown you if you don't eat grandma's cake or something like that, which I know is a real issue for some people or they go vegan and their family just wants none of it. In that case, if you have to eat that food to be able to function within your own family and personal life, I will never hold that against you. But if you're at an office party and someone makes a cake and you say, well, it's already there, so I might as well eat it. I would argue that that is not an individual practicing veganism at that point. No, I, I, and I agree with you. I'm just, what I argue for is giving yourself some leeway. If, if you are going to try and live your life with this 100% pure notion and you can and most and many of us do it's the beginners or the people that are trying to ha find a way into veganism that think that it's just impossible because they they can't make any of these small missteps or they're going to have to tell everybody that offers them something no 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 I can't do it I can't do it. it we need to let them know that purity is not the end that's not that's not the end we have in mind that what you put in your body isn't the whole reason for it. Though the reason for it is to create less demand. So I mean, that's that's just my opinion. The next thing I think, if, if everyone had that philosophy where it's okay to break your veganism if it's super inconvenient, there would be no quote unquote pure vegans. I hate using that phrase, but if people like me and you and John didn't exist, or there's no such thing as 100% vegan. But if the idea that what he's suggesting, what you're suggesting with the cake is okay, there would be no goal to get to. There would be no, I guess, for Plato's ideal type vegan philosophy, bringing that back. So I think you need both to really function effectively. You need to, but you need the not 100% on board vegan, maybe having cake every now and then if it's a bother not to. When they do that, they need to have the intention that they're eventually going to get to that "quote unquote" pure stage of veganism. Right. Yeah. So I guess what I guess what I would say is that I wouldn't suggest you should go through life thinking it's okay to do that sort of thing. But what you need to do, what I think is best for all of us, is to make sure that we forgive ourselves if we do if we do accidentally consume something, or you know, if if you make some sort of misstep, you know, that it's okay to mess up. Yeah, I agree with that. But what I take issue with is his idea that it's okay to have milk and cheese sometimes if, as long as you <laughs> If did, you really want it badly. Yeah, <laughs> if you went through great lengths to avoid it and was still there, then I guess it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, yeah, that's that's crazy. I personally have never met someone who only eats backyard eggs or no, free-range eggs. Yeah, that is the, the, the myth of the backyard eggs. 
Yeah. Yeah. People go, what about backyard eggs? And then my answer is always, are those the only eggs you ever eat? (laughs) (laughs) And the answer always is no. They have someone who has chickens every once in a while to get backyard eggs. But other than that, they'll just eat whatever you throw in front of them. I mean, I knew somebody that had chickens. And it's kind of funny. I was just talking about this the other day with my aunt. But I have a friend that used to live right down the street from here who had chickens and that was how she like got her eggs, and like this was in the middle of like the ghetto, <laughs> so it's totally illegal. But like, yeah, like she had chickens, and it, that's what she had. But it's so rare that people have that. It's like no, no you're just getting yeah. everybody else is getting their eggs. So. But isn't there even? And I don't want to get off topic here, but I, there's even some ways that that is not good for the chicken. No, it totally isn't. Yeah, I mean they, they eat their own eggs. They'll yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're gonna take those nutrients back into right, them. right, right. But still, it's it's not good for them. I had another thing that I kind of took umbrage with. He makes equivalence to Nazism a lot in this book where he says it's kind of like what happened with the Nazis and the Holocaust. And I really don't like putting that phrase out there ever. I, even when people say this person's Nazi, even like the soup Nazi in Seinfeld. I know, I hate yeah, the soup Nazis. Hate that too. It's, the Nazis were awful, 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 like superhero bad awful, but in the real world. So yeah. when you watch a movie and you go, wow, that person's just super villain evil. It was like that but actually happening and yeah. super triggering for a lot of people from different ethnic backgrounds and really a comparison we don't need to make. We don't need to compare it to something like that. You could just say, let's stand alone and say, hey, all these animals are dying. Yeah. We only say all these animals are dying, kind of like the Holocaust. You don't have to do that. <laughs> right. An interesting point, though, that you brought that up is I remember reading a bunch of things about how Hitler was against vivisection and stuff. Like, he hated testing on animals, which is, I think that's why he, like, geared towards doing that kind of stuff towards humans, which is just awful. Yeah, somebody should have told him that humans are animals. Right? (laughs) But, yeah, I remember reading about that, and I'm like, oh, that's crazy. That, yeah, that was a thing. Yeah. It's pretty weird. It, like testing on humans is okay. It's like right, right, the normal. But yeah, he had like campaigns for like keeping animals protected and stuff like that. It's like how contradictive can you be? Like, <laughs> oh, Hitler was an animal, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Oh, there's another point that came across similar along these lines, and we talked a little bit about it earlier. Is they're talking about Saint Francis, about he was just all about everything every single little thing in the world every rock every leaf every breeze every ray of sunshine every butterfly every dog he just loved it all he's every time he stepped outside his i guess his heart exploded and he was just so happy for everything <laughs> but he thought they were all on the same level on the spirituality side of things because he was a very saint francis obviously very religious person so then he basically said eh, well i guess it's all okay so i can just eat whatever i want which is something i've actually heard a couple times where Everything's on the same moral plane. The grass you walk on is on the same moral plane as people. So it's okay to eat cows. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the plants have feelings, people. I mean, plants can feel pain, so kill a cow? Like, wait a minute. Yeah, you're really stretching your logical conclusions here to allow yourself to continue to do whatever you wanted to do in the first place. And so those are the other things I had highlighted. Well, I I have a couple uh, still. Now, he doesn't talk a lot about hunting, but there's this one quote near the end that basically is a big booyah to all the standard omnivores in the world. And some of you are listening, so check it out. Uh, And this starts in the middle of a thought. You'll just have to deal with that. There is a tendency, however, for these fine distinctions to blunt the force of the original criticism. And in some cases, I do not think distinctions can be validly drawn at all. Why, for instance, is the hunter who shoots a deer for venison subject to more criticism than the person who buys a ham at the supermarket? Overall, It is the intensively reared pig 
who has suffered more than the deer who suddenly gets shot. So, we talk a lot sometimes about hunters who kill deers, which is awful, and they should stop. But up until the moment the deer is shot, it has lived its normal life. The factory-farmed animal you buy at the supermarket has suffered, has been brought into the world to suffer, has been killed inhumanely, and you get off pretty much scot-free because you're making a normal action in a world designed for you. Whereas the hunter pulling a trigger seems like he's done something worse. What are your thoughts? Wow, that's intense. So, yeah, I mean, like you said, a deer gets to live its life and then it's over in an instant like that. And a factory farm animal never knew what pleasure was. So, yeah, I mean, that's... Whew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had never never thought about it. From I, that yeah. Point. Oh, jeez. Um, do you have something that <laughs> I d- first thoughts? You don't have to do either. So yeah. I mean, right, yeah. Right, don't right. do either, obviously. But like, I mean, it's a no win either way because you're. It's like you're putting the one out of its misery, and the other one, it's like you're just taking it away. But the animal living in misery is only there because you are contributing to a system and a market that makes it okay to breed that into existence. Right. Whereas when the deer is coming to existence, it is just a creature living its natural life. If humans went away, it wouldn't really care. Right. Maybe there'd be less roads to run across, or maybe we'll run across more roads because it'd be hit by less cars. But the deer can go and doesn't eat us. So the deer was born regardless of whether or not we do anything. I guess you can make an argument for certain things like get deers together in closer quarters, they breed more, and then maybe we contribute to deer overpopulating. I don't know. Not the point of this podcast. What I'm saying is that we're invading the deer's world and taking its life. We're basically breaking into its house and killing it. Right. Whereas with the pig, we are actively bringing it into existence. We are making it alive. We are giving it sentience and the ability to feel it would not be in that situation if it was not for us. And then we go out and then you could say we put it out of its misery or end its life too. And so I have to agree with Peter Singer or do I have to agree with Peter Singer? Because one is very much an invasion of the animal's autonomy and the natural order of things. And then one is just a creation of a new order that results in more on the surface suffering as far as we can comprehend as people. So I think they're both terrible in different ways. Yeah. Which, which brings up another interesting thing. When Peter Singer was listing some of the counter arguments that he hears, you know, against veganism, there was one that was new to me where apparently some meat eaters say that it's a good thing for them to continue eating meat because the factory farmed animals would are only brought into existence for that purpose. So if they weren't eating meat, those animals would have never existed at all, which of course is ridiculous because they exist only to suffer. So if right. they had a choice, they probably would not have existed. But that's a, a something I'd never heard before. Interesting counter argument to that would be if you could only give birth to children who would have severe mental issues and have nerve damage to the point where they're constantly feeling pain and they can't move, they can't walk, you would never have kids, I'm guessing. Some people would. But because they're humans and that's different. And that species All human life is valuable. Because humans are humans. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have one more passage that I wanted to highlight. This one really, this one struck me so hard that I put it on my Instagram. That tells you something. Wow. Mm -hmm. Links to Seth's Instagram in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. And this is more about speciesism and how it intersects with other social justice. It is often said as a kind of corollary to the idea that 
humans come first, that people in the animal welfare movement care more about animals than they do about human beings. No doubt this is true of some people. Historically, though, the leaders of the animal welfare movement have cared far more about human beings than have other humans who cared nothing for animals. Indeed, the overlap between leaders of movements against the oppression of blacks and women and leaders of movement against the cruelty to animals is extensive, so extensive as to provide an unexpected form of confirmation of the parallel between racism, sexism, and speciesism. So basically, the people in this world that are most speciesist are probably the most racist and the most sexist because they're all about themselves, people that are like them, genders that are like them, and animals that are like them. And the further away you get from that, you find that people are more accepting of everything. If if you're inclined to believe that all animals deserve to not suffer and deserve consideration, you're probably a person that's more inclined to accept other types of humans. That is something I've heard a few times, and I do agree with it, that if you are the kind of person who goes, breaks down when they see a dead cat on the side of the road or possums. I've seen a lot of dead possums today. What's up with that? Anyway, your odds are the kind of person will also be incredibly upset when you see humanitarian things as well. I agree. 100%. And Peter Singer is actually a very classic, uh, not classic, he's very, demonstrates this in his own work too. Another book that I mentioned before we start recording is A Life You Can Save by Peter Singer, which he basically talks about the best ways to make sure that human lives are saved as well. So it's not, he's not just that vegan guy. He's also done a lot of other work to try and promote humanitarian causes as well. I hear he also uh, makes um, balloon animals. Really? No, I made oh. that up. Well, I was going to say, are they balloon non-human animals or balloon <laughs> animals? <laughs> Joe with the home run. <laughs> I enjoyed reading this book again. I love reading about the different philosophy and history behind things. And as much as I dislike hearing about how terrible the world is, it always, for me personally, is, I think, healthy to reinforce why I do what I do in my lifestyle. While I may not agree with some of the overarching things he recommends, similar to what we were debating about earlier, the holiday of purity versus making it accessible, I think that's such a gray area to veganism and really any type of social justice movement as a debate that's been done by many people much more qualified to have that debate than us i'm pretty qualified oh all right well i watched a youtube <laughs> video once so i think i'm an expert now oh uh, we read a book joe oh right and yeah, we read a book so again <laughs> it's a lot of stuff that's there is again it just you gotta do whatever you know is best for you i'm not gonna tell you the best way to go about your vegan journey i will tell you that you should be making efforts to live as close to a 100 percent vegan lifestyle as is possible for you and whatever that is for you is what it is for you what is for me is gonna be different than what is for you maybe you live in a family where you have to eat non-vegan meals to be able to function at the dinner table or you don't have access to certain foods or you have health issues, and that's okay. I get it. But if, as long as you're moving towards... Actually, I don't get it because I'm not in a situation, but I get that you get it. Yeah, and, and this comes back to what we've talked about a lot, which is the working definition of veganism is to consume as few animal products as practical or practicable, depending on which one of those words you like. And that is different for everybody, right? So that's my point with the cake. You know, I'm going to be able to skip that cake. But everybody needs to know, just do the best you can, especially when you're starting out. It's not about 100%. It's about, especially when you're starting out, figure it out, work as best as you can, and do as much as is practical for you in that time of your life. I think we should have picked a more serious example than birthday cake. Yeah, it was too late now, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I didn't read the book, so I don't really know everything that's in there, but the stuff that you guys were talking about so far as like vivisection and, you know, obviously veganism and, you know, I have just experience from it. And back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a big deal to talk about vivisection and people were really against it. And then it kind of fizzled out and then it came back and then it kind of goes in cycles, but it's it's an important thing to talk about. I mean, the things that we do to beagles, like Joe had mentioned, you know, a lot of times they get like treated really bad and like they they put gas masks on them and they hook them up to cigarettes and like make them breathe all the cigarette smoke and just it's the stuff they do to them is just horrendous and it's not just beagles obviously it's all kinds of animals but like for some reason beagles are always singled out for that <laughs> it's pretty aw- strange yeah it's really awful so so i just know a little bit about the book just from what you guys are talking about like i've dealt with in in real life and reading and from other sources and seeing videos and stuff so yeah it's awful but it sounds like it's an interesting book definitely yeah i mean it- the, the thing about books relating to veganism is there's just so many of yes. them now. And yeah. if you wanted to read about it constantly, you could. Uh, but I don't recommend reading about it constantly because you'll make yourself insane. Mm-hmm. But I think this one is a good choice because it's basically one of the foundational books of the movement. So it's sort of, you can see a lot sprang from this book. I would recommend this book especially to anyone who's thought about veganism or maybe thought it's too hard but maybe doesn't know a lot about the background behind the animal abuse that we take for granted as people and as vegans we know about but we kind of take for granted that other people don't i think someone coming in fresh who's interested in veganism on comedy yeah, that'd be kind of cool i've seen some vegans i think it's a good entry point for them because he does go into some details about the atrocities we do to animals and then as to Seth's point, he does make it more accessible lifestyle to someone who's maybe starting from a purely omnivore diet. But if you're 100% vegan, again, air quotes on the 100% vegan, <laughs> as close to vegan as you can be with your current lifestyle, and you really don't like reading about terrible things to animals, I think you can safely skip this book and really not miss out on a whole lot. I, I, I'll agree to that. Yeah, it's it's more of a, a historical text in, in a lot of ways, so... It's not required reading. Alrighty. Well, if anyone has any thoughts on Animal Liberation, Peter Singer, our podcast, or wants to fact check us on any of the ridiculous things we said on this episode, or has any feedback, or wants to be a guest, or really just wants to say hi and let us know they're listening, because that does help, you can email us at bekindpodcast at gmail.com. Right, that's it for today. So, so long, folks. Bye. Peace. Podcast presented by the Animal Advocates of South Central Pennsylvania.